Welcome back to the 176th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including debt activists, yes, debt activists, buying up debt from student loans, how the GOP strategy to reassure people about elections is going, and a interesting article talking about how corruption is legal. That obviously comes from a outlet that has a very specific opinion about how lobbyists operate. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, there's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So how much of the government spending that we currently do could be replaced with private funding? I mean, think maybe roads, uh, debt relief. That's a present one, at least in the articles that we're going to be going through today, welfare. How much of this could or how much of the burden could be taken on by private people, communities, things like that? It's an interesting conversation. I know a road that in Virginia is being built by a private company and then eventually it will be given to the Virginia government after I believe it's a 99 year term and during the time that the private company is operating it it will be a toll road so there are different combinations of how the private and public sector can interact with one another and I want to know where you think the line should be or are there other programs that the private citizenry the private sector could take up instead of the public sector maybe it'd be a little bit more efficient but maybe that's just my bias shining through a little bit All right, let's jump to our first story that comes from Truth Out. Debt activists bought $10 million in student debt for $125,000 and canceled it. So when I first read this, I was very, very intrigued. Because obviously, this last few months, this last year, Biden has been pushing that he is going to cancel student debt, or at least a good chunk of it. He's put forward a few proposals. Some of them have failed. One of them now is in front of the Supreme Court, or going to be in front of the Supreme Court. So this is obviously something that he really, really cares about. And then I heard the word debt activist. I was like, what? I mean, I'm not surprised there's activism for everything nowadays, but... I didn't see that one coming, I won't lie to you. So I was very, very intrigued by this because it is a non-public sector way of fixing or addressing this issue rather than the government coming in and just canceling debt considering they, I believe they finance more than 80% of the student loans. I could be wrong with that percentage, but they have a large amount of the student loans underneath their umbrella, the Penn Grants or Pell Grants and all these other different programs. So when you see a company, or in this case, a, a nonprofit, say, hey, we're going to address this issue. We're going to take it on. We're going to try to help students who are in debt. I love this sort of action. Even if I don't 100% agree with the ideas behind it, you know, if you take out a loan, you should have to pay it back. I 100% still believe that. But if you're going to have the issue solved, I'd rather have the issue solved by private companies, nonprofits that are willing to address it rather than the burden going on the government and that relief having to be done with government taxpayer dollars. And then we're taking on the burden of the program as taxpayers rather than having a private company do exactly what they're doing. So with all that laid out, let's jump into the first quote from this article that we got today. Quote, debt activists have bought out the student debt balances held by nearly all of the attendees of a historical black college for a penny on the dollar and canceled it entirely. On Monday, a debtors union called the Debt Collective announced that in collaboration with the sister organization, the Rolling Jubilee Fund, 
It bought nearly $10 million of debt in collections from Morehouse College for a mere $225,000, or little more than a penny on the dollar. Morehouse College is a historically black men's liberal arts college in Atlanta whose alumni include notable figures like Martin Luther King Jr. With the college's permission, the debt collective then released all of the debt, eliminating the balances of over 2,777 accounts from the fall 2020 ter 2022 term and earlier. No strings attached, end quote. And so, one, this is amazing to see that a college that has a long reputation of servicing a community that was underserved for a long time, that they are, this debt collector is going and saying, hey, okay, we understand that you know, college is a burden. These student loans can be a lot on creating generational wealth. Let's help out some of these students going to this historically black college so they can get out into the world and start making a little bit of extra money. I think that's a really good thing. If they did it to any other college, you know, any other, you know, if there was a historically Asian college or a historically white college, it'd be just as noble. It's not more noble because they're doing it to a historically black college and university. But it is still nice to see. And uh, you can kind of see the, the politics of the group kind of line up because obviously they want to relieve the debt of people who went to college. That puts them, at least nowadays, in the modern framework on one side. And then, you know, that side normally has some intersectional roots. So targeting or targeting is probably a bad word, but going for a historically black college and university also seems to make sense with where the debt collective wants to have one of the largest impacts and they align on those political issues. But it's just amazing to see this sort of thing taking place and people really getting together and they're really passionate about this issue. And this is uh, the thing that I want to get at. Obviously, Biden is talking about this issue because it's at least semi-popular and there are people who are semi-passionate about said issue, but it never really boils over. It's, it's passionate enough that, hey, I'm going to tell my government to fix it for me but not to actually take action. No, these people are taking, they are so passionate about this issue that they are taking action and they're doing it outside of the government. There's a lot of uh, talk about how much nonprofits or non-government organizations can really have an impact, how much they should actually be a part of the political world, how much influence they can really have. And this is an example that leans on the side of, yes, they can have a huge, huge impact and they can really affect change. And imagine if more organizations come up like this and they work with colleges in order to pay, buy up some of the debt and pay it off. Now, let's be clear. It has to be the – the debt has to be held by the college. This is why this is a little bit tricky because a lot of these loans aren't actually held by the college. A lot of these loans don't have any undersigning by the college. They have no stake in it whatsoever. It's probably going to be a lot of these uh, smaller colleges that are trying to get certain – proportions of the population to come to their school and get them out of uh, terrible situations. So it's not going to work everywhere. I under understand that, but it is beautiful, beautiful to see. And you're like, wait, well, Alex, why, do you, why wouldn't it work uh, everywhere? Well, a lot of these colleges, like I said, they have no stake in the matter and almost all the loans go through the government. So these companies, these organizations probably have to go to the government to get a lot of the student loans relieved in other places or more public universities. So we'll, we'll see how far they can go with this. We'll see how far they can take it. And honestly, I think we need to restructure some of the way that 
colleges give out these loans so that they do have to have a vested interest in it. And once something like that happens, then an organization like this could e be even more effective. So what is, we kind of went through the current story. What is this debt collective actually all about? What are they doing? How are they funded? So on and so forth. Quote, this is one of the single largest debt cancellations that the Debt Collective and Rolling Jubilee Fund have undertaken in their decade-long history of strategically purchasing debt and eliminating it. The dramatic action offers a burst of energy to the debt ca cancellation movement in a moment when it appears that the Biden administration has set aside the idea of a broad-based student debt cancellation. Quote, our nation is defaulting on the promise of education when we burden communities, especially black, historically black colleges and university graduates, with crushing amounts of student debt, Braxton Brewington, spokesperson for the Debt Collective, said in a statement. This nearly $10 million of student debt cancellation will put thousands of black folks in a better position to be able to save for retirement, purchase a home, or even start a small business. End quote. So like I said, you can see their, their politics lining up very conveniently here, but it's still a noble cause. No matter whether you agree with their politics, lining up exactly as it is and doing it for certain people, I, like I said, I don't care. It's private action. You can do whatever you want. If they're going to get criticism for focusing on one specific demographic than another, <coughs> send it their way. But just remember that they're still helping students out. They're helping out people who are going to college to further their career, to actually uh, educate themselves so that or make an investment so that they can come out on the other side with a higher earnings capability with the possibility of bringing their family out of terrible situations you know no matter who you are i know plenty of people who were from rural appalachia and i say rural appalachia the more rural side of virginia who are going to college because they're the first time their first generation they're going to college because they think they can make an impact they can help their parents out with their housing or they can give them a little bit of extra money when they're out there earning it doesn't have to be this oh well yes one side one population needs this the most no everybody can benefit from a program like this and when i say a program i mean people getting together and using their collective action i i know i've said it multiple times but this is what's really inspiring about this because it's not a corporation that's making money off of it it is not someone who is oh well yes uh, i'll do it out of the goodness of my soul really it's just to placate their moral uh, issues they have with themselves and they just donate a lot of money or create a scholarship at a college so that they can feel a little bit better they can get their name on something no these are people who principle on principle alone think that this should be happening and they're going forward and they are putting their vision out into the world and you know it's not exactly the 100 percent american entrepreneurial spirit but it does have that sense of, okay, hey, let's get creative about this. Let's find a way to work around this. Let's make sure that we can help these people and doing it in a very creative, fun way. Or, you know, fun may be a little bit of a stretch, but a very creative way. It is a very American way to go about this. So I absolutely love things like this because I don't want our generation to be stagnant. I don't want America to stop, one, keeping up with that ethos that we had where hey you don't need to rely on the government to fix your problems we as a community we as a group we as a state we as a nation we as a people can come together and solve some of our issues that don't have to run through the government and also the second sentiment which is 
at the end of the day, if you want something done, do it yourself, okay? And I love that. It just made me really happy to see an article like this. Like I said, I don't agree with everything that they're doing. I, or I take that back. I agree with what they're doing. I think it is actually noble. I don't agree on the principle alone that, hey, we should help out these people with their loans. I mean, if you take out a loan, you should pay it back yourself. That's how it should work in an ideal world. But there are lots of circumstances that lead to things becoming a lot harder. Uh, you have a family emergency. You have to go an extra year because you failed that one class with that really hard professor. I understand there are lots of extenuating circumstances. So, of course, when you see an issue, people are stepping up. They're trying to fix it. They're trying to alleviate the burden on these people. I think it is beautiful to see this sort of movement, this sort of action bubbling up through a community rather than hey, big daddy government coming down and saying, oh, yeah, we'll solve all your problems. We will cancel all your debt. It's just inspiring to see. And I hope more things like this come out. I hope there are more groups that use this collective action in order to solve serious issues. And maybe we can stop relying on the government so much. But that is just, you know, that's just my opinion. So let's jump to our second article that comes from National Review. Major GOP strategize. Donors fight to restore confidence in elections. One lawsuit at a time. So, obviously, the voter confidence has gone down over the last few years, especially on one side of the aisle. And I did a podcast, actually, I was going to say not too long ago, but it was pretty long ago, about how the fact that when your side loses, if you're a Republican and Democrats win, if you're a Democrat, Republicans win, vice versa, whatever, if your side loses, then you have less faith in the election which seems to make a little bit of sense on a really basic level. You don't want to lose. You don't want to believe that your candidate could have lost. You don't want to believe that your values were not accepted or that your beliefs or policy proposals were not accepted by another half of the country. So, of course, you're going to be a little bit skeptical. But this is a different battle of voters' confidence with a lot of talk and it happening multiple times in a row, and then Donald Trump saying over and over again, ah, these elections are rigged, which, let's be clear, there was definitely some funny business. And when I say some funny business, I'm not saying, oh, well, yes, the ballot machines were blah, blah, blah. No, I'm saying if you look at the social media influence alone, allowing certain types of content to go through, suppressing other types of content, not giving the platform to people that may be a little bit more conservative or maybe even just putting some they're still giving the conservative people a platform but they're boosting other sources that may be a little bit more mainstream and guess what out of all the mainstream outlets a lot of them were anti-trump and trying to always tear him down so we know that there has been some plays made on the more cultural side of things but there's still a lot of people who hear that kind of rhetoric and then they instantly assume, oh, no, no, it's actually the voting system that is absolutely broken. And then you have, you know, what I believe it's uh, 2000 Mules or whatever the name of that movie that was breaking it down was. Oh, you had Sidney Powell saying, oh, release the Kraken. I'm going to release the Kraken, Rudy Giuliani and all these different people saying that there was outright voter fraud, which has not been proven in court yet, as far as I'm aware. A lot of Trump's lawsuits went down the drain, and you could chalk that up to having people that are absolutely opposed to him in the courts. But remember, he filed them in a whole bunch of states, not just states that are against him, but also some states that are friendly to him, or at least were in his past election, and they still didn't come out on top for him. So obviously that sort of rhetoric can make people think on it, and make people have a little bit less uh, trust in the system. And yeah, to be clear, I'm not saying 
I do hate when the media says, ah, yes, well, Donald Trump said all this, so therefore the people just believe this. It's like, okay, some people are like that. A majority of people are not like that. Just because they hear Donald Trump say, oh, this was stolen, they don't instantly go, oh, okay, 100% that was stolen. Uh, some of his supporters will do that. A lot of people will either look for a little bit more research or they'll wait for more information to come out to really solidify that in their mind. But the people you know, who want to portray this as, ah, Donald Trump has a cult-like following, or even just people on the GOP side have a cult-like following, they'll say, ah, yes, this sort of rhetoric is dangerous because it, it truly shapes and molds the minds of the people. I'm like, uh, yeah, maybe a little bit, maybe some of them, but some other people are rational actors. I mean, let's be clear, the people that support that aren't necessarily not rational actors, but there are a lot of rational actors who will step back and say, okay, hold on. Let's let's see what the evidence is before we go forward with such bold claims. But like I said, it's still taking hold. So the Republican lawfare experts are actually going about this one lawsuit at a time, trying to shore up some of the election laws, make sure there's no f funny business, make sure that they're not too easy to I don't want to say violate, but they're not too easy on the voter so they're not like oh yes you can register on the exact same day without an id but you could have a utility bill or something like that even that you know that is you know semi safe if you have a utility bill but i mean could you not steal a utility bill from somebody and say you are who the utility bill says you are so that's why you would probably want to have some sort of photo ID, whether it's a government-issued one, driver's license, uh, maybe even a, a school one for younger students who are there, like at Texas A&M. They have their school ID that says, they, oh, they're a student here, so they're actually living here during the time of the election. So lots of different lawyers are going forward with this type of process where they're saying, okay, we're going to shore up some of these laws. We're going to make sure that none of them are unconstitutional by their own state constitution, so on and so forth. So here's what's actually going on. I'm going to stop ranting and actually get to what the article's talking about. Quote, it's no secret that many conservative voters in swing states remain less than confident about the accuracy of the country's elections. A July poll from Arizona State University found 65% of Arizonans are very or somewhat confident in the outcomes of the state's elections. The sentiment around the validity of elections is vastly different between the parties. While 74.6% of Democrat voters say that they are confident in the outcome, 65.6% .6 of Republican voters say that they are not confident in the outcome of the state's elections. In Pennsylvania, 75% of Democratic voters are very confident that the quote, tabulated vote count in Pennsylvania will be accurate if mail-in voting is widely used in the next general election, according to Franklin and Marshall from, uh, it's a poll from April. Among independents, that number drops to 33, while confidence among Republicans sits at an abysmal 8%. And let's be clear in that one, they're not saying uh, just the election, they're saying if mail-in ballots, if mass mail-in ballots are allowed in the next election, uh, how much confidence do you have in it? And that's a staggering one. 75% of Democrats, and then you have 33% of independents, and then you have 8% of Republicans. There's probably a little bit of both sentiments. There's two sentiments there. There's one, hey, we got screwed out because of mail-in mail ballot last time, which is why the Republicans may be a little bit hesitant. But you also see that number with independents, which may actually speak to the fact that maybe mail-in ballot isn't as secure as we think it is. It also just... 
it just leads to late ballot counting because some people send it in too late and they have some of the people in the county say, well, no, we want to count them. We want people to opinions to be heard. Then it goes through some sort of legal case every single time, which is, well, hold on. If we're supposed to be counting votes, we're supposed to be just be tallying votes. And then we have to go to a court and we have to do a whole legal battle in order to validate our election. That just, it feels a whole bunch extra. And if it doesn't come down on your side, you feel like it's even more rigged. So no, let's just, Let's just have early mail-in voting uh, for people who are going to be out of the state or they're going to be in a different county. They're going to be away from home. Sure, let's have that, but let's cut it off. I would even say let's cut it off two weeks ahead of time. So there's every single vote that was sent in by mail can be there on Election Day, and then they can start tabulating from there. And even then, I'm pretty sure some Republicans would even try to argue with me that, oh, having that cutoff doesn't actually mean anything because you could still have ballot stuffers. You could still have people who are going out and harvesting a whole bunch of votes and mailing them in, even though they're people that wouldn't necessarily take the time to go vote in the election and they wouldn't necessarily care. But somebody came to their door and was insistent and they were trying to get them away or trying to get them to leave. Yeah, I, I think there could be a valid argument made there, but it's just staggering that that many Democrats are totally okay with it. Republicans are on the totally opposite side, and independents lean a little bit closer to the Republicans, which I'm not saying that's evidence that, oh, yeah, this is common sense. But when you have independent people who are could vote one way or the other, who normally are willing to give good graces to both sides, and they're willing to say, okay, it's not malice, it's just uh, bad a it's not bad action. It's just accidental bad things that happen. Because if you're willing to vote for both sides, you're probably not going to attribute malice to either side, or at least not all the time. Then when those people are still saying, well, mal harvesting and mail-in ballots, I, I just don't know. I don't know. That doesn't make me feel like everything is secure in the election process. That, that says something. That really highlights that the middle of the populace and the people that aren't fully on uh, the political spectrum that are lean, always lean one way or the other, it says that maybe there is an issue that needs to be addressed here. So what is the battle that these uh, lawyers are going through? What are the different legal battles that they're facing? Quote, and while President Trump's false claims around the 2020 election have surely contributed to voter skepticism, the problem stands only to worsen as Democratic activists challenge existing laws around the election security. That's why longtime Republican strategist Karl Rove, Hotler Steve Wine, and lawyer Bobby Birchfield worked together to launch Restoring Integrity and Trust in Elections last year, or RITE, R-I-T-E. The nonprofit works to restore integrity and trust in elections by fighting in the country's courts to defend attacks on mechanisms that state legislators put in place to ensure the integrity of the election, to safeguard the ballot, to promote trust and confidence in the election, and to elevate the quality of the electoral process. Quote, Wright is working hard on vo voters' behalf to help give them confidence, Derek Lloyd's president and CEO of Wright told National Review. And see, this is another example. I probably should have pointed this out at the top. Both of these articles have one common through line, which is people have a issue. People see a problem, and then they are creating organizations that go through the processes in order to affect change. This is exactly what we want to see because, once again, the government, when they try to fix something, sometimes it works. Sometimes it comes up with 10 more problems. Most of the time, it creates 10 more problems. Government is really good at one thing, coercion. That is literally their entire purpose. They have all the power. So 
they can coerce people to do whatever the government wants them to do. And let's be clear, in theory, you know, the people elect the government, the government fulfills their will, so you don't actually have to coerce them, they're willing to go along with it. But sometimes the government doesn't necessarily work in the best interest of everybody. They work in the best interest of people who have a very specific agenda. And that's just the reality of the case. And we elect people who have a very specific agenda that don't always focus exactly on what we want them to focus on and do it exactly the way we want them to do it because maybe they have a different plan to actually help people out or solve that particular issue. Maybe they have a little bit more experience and that's why we voted them in. But then you also have to have things that keep them in check on the outside or at least organizations that are willing to step up and solve issues outside of the government. Just like the Debt Collective in the last article or right in this article, these are people stepping up to the ball. They see an issue. They want to help solve it. They want to have an effect on the future of the nation or at least have an effect for very particular segments of the population like voters in certain states in this case or uh, students who attend specific colleges in the last one. And this is what I like to see. I like the people stepping up, trying to solve their issues rather than relying on government. And that's why I brought up both of these articles, because it is important to recognize you can have an influence. You can have an impact. If you're passionate about something, start a nonprofit. Start a company that you if you could make a company that makes profit while also advocating or even pushing certain things that you really love, that is what the beauty of America has always been. You know, Henry Ford, when he was going through the process of creating his company, he thought, and you know, it could be a whole bunch of rhetoric that he developed over years and years, but a lot of the sentiment was, oh, I want everybody to have a car to make their life easier. I want everybody to be able to go from point A to point B faster. I think a car is a, a great invention. And then eventually he was pushing for changes in the broader society that brought about uh, a lot of the supply chains and a lot of the innovation that allows us to thrive nowadays. And I know that sounds like a terrible or kind of an off-base example, but my point is he saw what could be fixed. He saw how he could help. He saw a vision of the future and how it could be implemented. And he took steps to do it. You can do the exact same thing. And if it's on more of a policy basis, great. If it's a product that you think could greatly benefit everybody in society, maybe even reshape the way we think about interacting with one another or the world around us, come on. You can do it. Don't ever doubt yourself. Push through. Organizations like this are fighting for what they believe in. You can do it too. That's all I really wanted to get out of those two because it's a lot of grassroots kind of stuff today. And this last one, this is not grassroots. This comes from Daily Cost. It's a very quick, well, the article is not too long, uh, but I have one quote that I really, really want to read from it. And the headline reads, Corruption is legal in America. The biggest threat is to democracy is in plain sight. So they're talking about lobbyists, of course, and the big companies, you know, using their money to influence the government, influence policymakers, and try to direct where the resources of those policymakers are going to go once they are on the hill. So, that one quote I really wanted to read to you. Quote, Candidates feel their main responsibility is to their donors, not the ordinary constituents. The donors tend to decide who wins and loses elections. The person who raises the most money tends to win. In 2020, 93.38% of House members that raised the most money won, while 82.35% of senators that raise the most money won. Congress spends 30% to 70% of their time fundraising for re-election. 
The majority of the donations come from major corporations. The system, this system, incentivizes politicians to do what their donors want in order to ensure that they continue to receive donations and outside funding. There are limits to how much individuals and corporations can donate directly to candidates. However, there are no limits to the amount of money that can be donated through super PACs or sorry, super political action committees or super PACs. Super PACs are organizations that do campaigning but are not allowed to coordinate with any candidate or party. So that's what part one of the quote. Uh, it's outlining everything that most people already know, except for the interesting stats about the people who had the most money and how often they won in both the House and the Senate. But here's the next interesting part of this quote. Quote, less than 1% of Americans donate more than $200 to political campaigns, while no more, that is no more than 0.05% that gave the maximum amount. Lobbyists, the people donors hire to influence politicians, sometimes even directly write the laws for Congress. They can easily slip in tax loopholes for the rich and other advantages. Political scientists have done research, and many agree with Bernie Sanders that the U.S. Ha can be thought of as an oligarchy. An oligarchy is a system of government in which small groups of people have the most power. In the United States, a small group of people of a very wealthy subset of Americans, the 0.05%, they are the ones that are controlling the game. End quote. And uh, that little part, I kind of added a little bit of uh, embellishment there, a little bit of flourish. But the point is that, yes, you know, we need small-dollar donors. You hear a lot of talk about small-dollar donors in order to offset some of the big corporations, a lot of the bigger companies that are throwing money at candidates. But then when you hear that only 1% of Americans donate $200, you, of course it's going to be really hard for the candidates to justify going out and caring about the issues of their everyday citizen when they have to make sure that they're going to have the money in the bank for the next run and guess who's given them or has the ability to give them the most money the corporations and the large donors so going forward we need to have some sort of way of restricting not only how much these corporations can give to super PACs or give directly to the candidate but we have to have a system that doesn't really focus on re-election. And one of the proposals that I still agree with and I will probably agree with until I die is term limits. Guess what? If you only have a set amount of terms, and sometimes, you know, they'll still worry about their next two elections, but then they'll f hit that final time and they can say, well, screw you donors, your money's not going to matter to me in two years anyway. But if we have term limits, then it actually relieves some of this burden towards the last, especially the last term that that person is in there because they don't have to worry about re-election to their current position. Now, you could still argue that, well, hey, they're going to worry about election to a higher office. Maybe go to a Senate position in the uh, rather than the House of Representatives, or maybe they're going to go for an even higher position. They're going to go for the presidency or governor of a state or something like that. Yes, I, I guess that argument is fair. But overall, the sentiment should be, hey, if we're worried about them caring only about elections, how do you make them stop caring? What, how do you create a different incentive structure? How do you stop them from caring about that? Ah, limit their ability to actually keep running. Hmm, 
maybe that's a solution. I don't know. Let's be clear. Multifaceted problem. Lots of different solutions. Probably putting caps on how much people can spend on certain places or creating amounts that have to be small dollar donations to show, well, hey, no, you can't make it through this primary if you don't have this amount of small dollar donations. I think that's actually an interesting way of going about it, showing that you care about the people, the people care about the issues you're talking about. Maybe that's how we should do it. There's lots of options here. Just think on it and maybe read this article yourself. It'll be linked in the description below, like and subscribe button. So before we go, let's jump to our daily delight, which comes from Woo Global. Adorable toddler wears her elation on her sleeve while meeting family doggo. So, you know, getting do a dog is always a fun surprise, or at least getting to meet one is always an adorable experience, especially when it's a toddler or a little baby because their reactions are just so adorable. Quote, Amu super amusing footage has surfaced of an adorable toddler whose excitement was evident to everyone around as she met her cousin's pet dog for the first time. She just loves animals, end quote. And the one thing about this video is her laugh is absolutely infectious. Quote, from her lovely attempt to say hello to the pup expressing her delight via heartwarming giggles, the little one sure told the pup how elated she was to meet it, end quote. And, you know, if you want to see any of these cute photos, you want to see any of these cute videos, or like I mentioned a second ago, you want to read any of these articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, and Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle, at your daily flip, where you can find my Twitter tirades that come out on Tuesday and Thursday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.